Do sit down. Very good morning to you. First thing I have to do is put the lectern up, so excuse me. So we're going to be looking at Titus for the next few weeks. So if you'd like to open back to page 1198 in the Bibles under your chair or in the pew in front of you. Page 1198. And let's pray together now. Father, thank you for this time to look at your word this morning and please now help us to see clearly what you're saying here and what it means for us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, would you rather be playing home or away? Um, I, when I was at school, I wasn't much of a sportsman. Uh, so my experience of playing home or away was limited to chess and a rather thrilling kind of inter-school maths competition we used to do where you'd face off with the other team about who could solve the equations the fastest and all that kind of thing. But, um, you know, while playing away from home was always kind of interesting, you discover new things, see, see new places, playing at home always has its advantages. Uh, you know, if you're playing chess, uh, you can set up the room so that the sun comes through the window into your opponent's eyes midway through the game. Um, you can put them too close to the radiator or the drafty door. See, don't mess with chess players. I think football and rugby and cricket have their equivalent sense of things being better on home turf. But for generations, or really millennia, Christianity has felt like a home game. So people come to us on our terms. And the wider culture could be described as kind of broadly Christian in tone, if not in belief, particularly when thinking about morality. But I don't know if you'd agree, it seems now something's changed. So we're now playing an away game with Christianity. You know, our culture increasingly doesn't share the same Christian values that we all used to have in common. It is suspicious of Christian faith, where before it was tolerant and happy to, to go along with things to some extent. It thinks Christian faith might at times even be dangerous, where before it was just perhaps a little bit unusual or eccentric. It's an away game where one feature of the game is that the rules of the game keep changing. And they change with increasing frequency. You notice that? So questions like, what is a good life? What is morality? What is a human being? What is a woman or a man? What is love and marriage? None of these are settled questions anymore. And there is vigorous debate on all these things, but it's very often a debate where Christians don't have a voice. Their voice is not particularly important in these 
debates as they go on. We talk about the culture wars, and sometimes it can feel like Christians and the church are, are in constant catch-up mode. You know, we're waiting to hear the latest new thing so that we can either support it enthusiastically or condemn it furiously. And at times, as Christians, we feel under pressure in this away game. You know, what happens at work? What happens at work when, you know, you're on a Zoom call and uh, everyone's asked to kind of put their pronouns after their name on the call? What do you do about being told everyone that works expected to wear a, a rainbow lanyard? What do we do about these things? Now, some people would say, well, why are you even asking the question? I mean, these things are fine. What's the problem? For others, they'd say, no, this is a red line and it must not be crossed. But the point is, before we even begin to answer those questions, we need to see we're not in charge of the questions anymore. Do you see? They're being asked of us if we're trusting Jesus. And we're having to figure out where do we fit into these things. And it might be that you're here and actually you want to ask Christians, well, how can you still believe this stuff about God and Jesus? Now, how can you take the Bible seriously in the 21st century? Why are you digging your heels in on, on issues that the wider culture thinks are obvious and good and right? But you kind of Bible-believing Christians, you, you seem to have a problem with these things. So I don't know if you've seen this week that same-sex marriage has been in the news in relation to the Church of England, of which we are a part and uh, some things were said by the bishops of the Church of England this week, and it's slightly too early to kind of fully digest and understand the implications of, of the kinds of things they've been saying, but someone might ask a church like ours or a church leader like me, well, why aren't you fully behind same-sex marriage in church? What is the problem? And increasingly, it won't just be church leaders being asked questions like that, will it? See, actually, it will be church members in their workplaces, in their friendships, as maybe people start to kind of twig and they go, hang on a minute, so, okay, oh, you're a Christian, are you? Oh, right, but you're not one of those sort of Bible-believing bigots, are you? And what are we going to say then? Well, this is one of the reasons we're coming to this letter that Paul wrote to Titus, that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And one reason we're doing that is that there are some key similarities between the context that Paul was writing into and the world that we live in today. So verse 4, if you look, Titus is Paul's son in the faith. He's a kind of protege, it seems, somebody that Paul has discipled, helped to come to faith, and is encouraging in his leadership role. He's a younger Christian than Paul, this guy Titus. And if you look down beyond the reading that we heard, we see verse 5, uh, that Paul left him on Crete. So Crete is a sort of holiday island that we think of it these days, Greek island. Um, but it's a place where in those days <coughs> um, they, they, Christians were seeking to plant churches. Paul left him on Crete to appoint elders in every town. So Titus is a kind of both church planter and bishop, in some ways, over different churches on the island of Crete. That's his kind of role. 
And the thing we see in this letter is that Crete is basically not the most obvious place to go and try and start a church-planting Christian movement. So just, just look at verse 12 in chapter 1 there. Uh, we read of what Cretans say about themselves. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And that's one of those funny paradoxes, isn't it? Because if a Cretan tells you that Cretans are always liars, well, are they telling the truth or are they lying? I'll leave that one with you to puzzle out. But you get the idea, you see. This is a culture marked by debauchery and things generally falling apart. And actually there was apparently a special verb that they made up, which was to do a Cretan, or to be Cretan, which basically meant to swindle somebody in a deal. So Crete is not a promising place for a new church to start. You know, you, you get that sense, not, there's not going to be people queuing up to join this Christian movement on this island. And you can imagine Titus, you can imagine other Christians with him thinking, really? We're going to try and bring the gospel into this culture? They're not going to listen. They're going to hate us. They're going to oppose us. They're going to hurt us. What's the point of doing this? And so the issues those Christians might have faced then are the issues that we still face today as we look out into London and the UK and the wider world and as we look out into our friendships and our neighbourhoods and our workplaces. Okay, so as Paul begins this letter, and we're just looking at verses 1 to 4 this morning, he makes two main points in these opening verses that will help us to think about these things. So you can see on the back of the notice sheet, if you've got that, here's the first one. Only God's truth leads to godliness. Only God's truth leads to godliness, verse 1. So Paul says he's a servant of God, he's an apostle, which is somebody commissioned, formally sent by Jesus to further the faith of God's elect, he says. Well, the elect, the elect are the, simply the people that have become Christians and the people who will become Christians. And Paul is saying his job is to help them in their faith and in their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. And this is the big theme of the letter right here in verse 1. And we'll see it again and again through the letter. The truth that leads to godliness. This is the big thing. So, you know, think about it. You're on Crete and you're looking around at the culture around you and you're thinking, this is, you know, this is crazy. It's a free-for-all. No one knows what is right or wrong. People are making it up as they go along. And in the midst of that, people are getting hurt, they're getting killed, the vulnerable are being ignored and exploited. And you're asking, what is going to help these people and this culture as it kind of spirals out of control? What do we need, you might be thinking? Do we need more lessons in morality? Do we need better PS PSHE and citizenship lessons in schools? Do we need to get involved in politics? Same kind of questions we might ask today. Well, can you see what Paul's answer is? It is knowing the truth that will lead to godliness. The truth about God and about the hope of eternal life, as we'll see in a minute. If you want godliness, if you want to sort out a godless culture, if you want to clean up Crete, you need to preach the truth. 
Right living begins with right belief. And of course, many today, and maybe even we at times might think, well, surely that's not the answer. You know, if anything, the idea of truth is part of the problem. You know, the world we live in today is a post-truth world. You know, we believe in alternative facts these days. Isn't that right? You know, you can share your truth if you want. I'll share mine. And if they're different from one another, well, that, actually, that's something to celebrate. It's not something to worry about. And then, you know, godliness, morality, whatever you want to call it, well, really, the only thing you can say is, if it hurts other people, don't do it. If it doesn't hurt other people, it's up to you. Do what feels right. And when you put it like that, it sounds kind of okay, doesn't it? It sounds kind of attractive. But it doesn't take long before we're arguing about pretty fundamental questions. Like the ones we thought about before. Like, what is a woman? What is the value of life in the womb? Does it matter who I sleep with? Can I be in a relationship not just with one person but with two people? And you will easily find two non-Christians who don't believe in God who will come up with conflicting answers to all those questions, won't you? And what do we do then as we see a world around us struggling with all these questions but not really being able to come up with any coherent answers to them? Well, Paul says what we need is the gospel. We need the good news. We need the truth about Jesus. And what we need to understand is that how we live is actually a truth question. People will say, no, 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 no it's not. Don't, don't make it so complicated, people will say. Look, it's just about, just, just don't hurt other people. That is the sort of ethic of today, isn't it? So don't, don't make it more complicated than that. But actually, the, the problem with just saying that is that hurt and suffering are extremely complicated things because there are times when suffering and self-denial are exactly the things that we ought to be doing. <clears throat> so every parent realises that at kind of 3 a.m., followed by 3.30 a.m., followed by 4.15 a.m. And actually, if every parent just did what feels right at that point... Well, they'd stay asleep, wouldn't they? And they wouldn't get up and they'd leave their baby or whatever it is. More than that, parents also know that sometimes loving a child involves depriving them of something they really want, which will make them cry. Because that thing is not good for them. Or will lead to greater harm longer term than the short term crying. Now, those are just two simple examples. There are many other times when we know that actually it is necessary to suffer in some way because good will result. And so that, that kind of ethic of just saying, oh, well, just don't hurt one another, no, that, that, you need to think about what kind of hurt, not just for you know, others around us, but what, you know, what kind of hurt should we be prepared to put up with for ourselves? What is right and wrong? What is worth it and what isn't worth it? So we can apply that all over the place with these difficult questions. One of the unspoken assumptions in these debates around same-sex marriage and the church, for example, and I raise this just because 
it is the, an issue of the moment that people are talking about. So people, one of the unspoken assumptions is that it cannot be right to say that the right place for sex is within, within marriage between a man and a woman. That it cannot be right to say that outside of that context, whatever our desires, whether they're heterosexual or homosexual, or anything in between, it cannot be right to say that we should abstain from those desires. There is an unspoken assumption that it is harmful to say that. Okay, but here's the question. How do we know what is harmful? And what if we have a God who designed us, who actually designed us as human beings, who therefore knows how we work and what makes us tick? And what if that God has told us what human flourishing looks like? That there is marriage and there is also singleness. That one is not better than the other. That both have value. That both can bring joy and both can bring challenges. That both equally can involve human flourishing just as much one as the other. Well, if, if God has told us that, and that is, that is what is true about human beings, well, that changes what we think harm actually is in that context, doesn't it? It has to. See, it's only the truth that God gives us that will help us make sense of godliness and what right living looks like. Now, I appreciate, I'm throwing out these things to think about and for some people these are not armchair issues that we can just kind of sit back and think about so these may be deeply personal in different ways they may be they may be deeply personal for us personally maybe deeply personal for those that we love and care about and the, the problem with raising these things in a, in a sermon like that like this is you can't say everything you want to say and we have touched on these kinds of issues over, in a number of ways over the last few years, if you've, if you've been with us. And uh, one of the places I'd point you if you want to think about this a bit more, this is, there's a series on the website, a sermon series, um, called The Purpose of Sexuality. And we thought about that it was an evening service series last year. And I'd encourage you to go and listen to that if you haven't, if you want to think about, you know, what, are we, what else do we want to say about this as a church? But the point is we, we can't avoid talking about these things as much as they're difficult to discuss. Because the Church of England is talking about it. If you, if you listened to the radio, I don't know if anyone listens to Radio 4 at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, you probably don't. But there was a bishop on the radio saying things that the Bible does not say. And so at that point you kind of think, well, this is a real life issue and a problem and we, 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 we cannot do anything but address this if we want to take God seriously but I say this I'm, I'm more than happy to talk further with anybody who wants to discuss push back say what do you mean by that how can you say that that's absolutely fine and I know others on the staff team are very happy to do that as well but let's think a bit more about the implications of this there's another implication of this first point that only God's truth needs to godliness. Another implication is this. When we're engaging with the so-called culture wars that go on around us, we read about in the papers and all that kind of thing, Christians need to do more than just pick a side. Because it's an away game. 
And the assumptions that both sides are often making are often both flawed in different ways. So what we need to do is to point out that the whole game that's being played in those culture wars is flawed. We need to challenge the assumptions that, that are underneath that. You know, so one of the things that goes on, you know, I don't know on social media, you know, are you, are you pro-JK Rowling and her refusal to say that someone born a man can become a woman? Or are we pro those who say on the grounds of compassion that we should help those who experience gender dysphoria as much as we can and this is about acknowledging their lived experience and all that kind of thing? Now, these, these are really difficult questions. And if we just present it as, well, are you pro that one or are you pro that one? That's what the culture wars want us to do. And it's not that Christians have nothing to say in these questions. We have lots of things to say from God's words. But the two sides of that debate out there in the world don't agree on what a human being is. And they don't agree on what difference it makes to be made in God's image and yet also broken by sin and then redeemed. Because that is, that is who human beings are. And that, that, therefore, is what we need to be talking about in order to be able to speak into those debates. Otherwise, Christians can sometimes come across as if our message has the, kind of, has the gospel over here, you know, the kind of, um, you know, how you get saved. And then over here we have the rules. You know, these are the Christian rules. And we just need to stand up for the rules and tell everybody they're wrong when they don't keep the rules. But Paul is saying, no, no, the two are deeply connected. You can't do one without the other. And actually, it is the gospel that leads to godliness. It is the truth that leads to godliness. So if you want to talk about how we live, preach the gospel of a saviour who died for sinners. That's where you start, Paul is saying. So what does that mean then when we're having those hard conversations with our friends and they're saying, you know, look, look it's 2023. That's the, that's the line, isn't it? It's 2023, guys, and you still believe this stuff? That's crazy. Well, what do we say? Now, I'm not pretending those conversations are easy. But again, rather than focusing on a particular view of marriage or whatever it is, we, we, we need to try and take a step back. And we need to say something like, look, I, I don't expect you to understand this at face value. Well, what I'd love you to understand is that I have a very different view of what human flourishing looks like that comes from my belief in Jesus as the Son of God. Now, that's a, I'm not sure I'd use exactly those words, but it's that sort of thing that we want to be trying to communicate. There's a great book on this. Uh, written by Glyn Harrison, who came to preach for us last year, um, who wrote a book called A Better Story. And that is what we need to be communicating, you see. Rather than just trying to find out where we fit into the world's story about these things, actually we have a better story about human beings than the one the world is telling. And that's what we want to tell people. And we need to find ways and opportunities to share that. And that is the big theme of this letter. Only God's truth leads to godliness. So there's one more thing to see briefly before we finish, which fleshes out the content of that truth that Paul urges Titus to preach, which is this, secondly, 
Only God's truth leads to real hope. Only God's truth leads to real hope. One of the reasons that the truth, the story that Christians can tell about Jesus is better than what the world has to offer is that it's a story about eternity. Can you see that in verse 2? In the hope of eternal life. Now in English that word hope has different meanings, isn't it? We're We're not talking about hoping to win the lottery here. You know, a nice idea, you can dream, you can think about what it would be like, but ultimately it's totally ridiculous. This is a different kind of hope. Some translations bring out the sense from the original language that when Paul says, in the hope of eternal life, it has the sense of the faith and knowledge of truth in verse 1, resting on the hope of eternal life. Or springing from the hope of eternal life. You know, we, we usually put it the other way around. If you put your faith in Jesus, you can know you have eternal life. But Paul is putting it the other way around. You have the secure hope of eternal life, therefore your faith and the knowledge of the truth are secure because your hope of eternal life is secure. Well, how can he be so sure then? Because God does not lie. Do you notice that? It's a striking thing for him to say. <clears throat> the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Why does that matter? Well, we need to know that God does not lie. We need to know that's what he's like. He cannot do anything but be true to himself and tell the truth. And actually, this is one of the things, that, the problems in the world around us, isn't it? Is there anyone or anything in the world where we can say with 100% certainty... This person or this thing is 100% trustworthy and faithful. They will never let us down. They will never fail to keep a promise. They will never turn out to be slightly disappointing. Now, of course, some people are wonderfully trustworthy, but it's all relative, isn't it? And I don't think anyone can say that they have never let someone down, never acted in a way that is disappointing, because that's what we human beings are like. But not God. And he made us. And he knows what we're like. And he sent his son to die for us. So where then is the proof of this eternal life from the God who does not lie? Well, ultimately, it's in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is where we need to look. There's good evidence that the resurrection of Jesus happened. You know, and if you think, well, I don't, I don't think there is, well, no, you, you go and look at it. If you want to talk more about that, we can have a chat about it. But there is good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that is true, well, we can know that when God talks about life beyond the grave in the Bible, he means it. He's proved it through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's not going to let us down. That is how secure this hope is. And that makes this gospel truth that Christians believe and proclaim Not just something that is for for here and now. Not just something for this life now. But for eternity. Look look at this sweep of history in verses 2 and 3. Can you see this? Promised before the beginning of time about eternal life that lasts forever. And proclaimed here and now today. Do you see that? Before time, eternity proclaimed today. And so it gives new meaning to that widely wielded phrase... The wrong side of history. You know that? You know, don't, be, don't be on the wrong side of history, people say, about whatever the issue is. And again, that's not to say that sometimes the issues being referenced aren't significant and serious. But what does Paul think the wrong side of history is? 
Well, based on this verse, he'd say it's, it's missing out on eternity, wouldn't he? And it's only getting that perspective in place that helps us make sense of those really difficult and often painful issues that we face right here, right now. So it's only eternity that would enable a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction to say, what matters more than going my way here and now is knowing God in eternity. It's only eternity that would enable a Christian who struggles with singleness to say, I'm not just going to date random unsuitable people because I know Jesus and I will know him forever face to face. It's only eternity that would enable a Christian who is unhappy in their marriage to say, I'm not going to give up. Even though the world will tell me, just walk away. You only get one life. No, I get eternity with Christ. And that changes everything now. Do you see? So as we draw this together, as I said, it's very hard to kind of half talk about some of these issues because there's so much that one would want to say to do justice to them. And we want to emphasize the gospel is a gospel message that says everyone is welcome. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is called by Jesus who died for them to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. And that will look different for everyone. But it's not that some people get a difficult life and some people get an easy life. And certainly not that some people who struggle with same-sex attraction get the hard bit and everybody else gets the easy thing. No, it looks different for everybody. But no one gets an easy ride when they start following Jesus. That is what discipleship looks like. We know that. Jesus tells us that. And yet, we know it's worth it because we find life as it's meant to be lived that starts now and lasts into eternity. That is the gospel. And so the question as we finish is this. Are we convinced that what London needs is this gospel? Are we convinced that what our workplace needs, our colleagues our families, our friends need is the gospel. Not just to, to get saved, but to find real life in all its fullness as God intended us to live, to find true godliness. Are we convinced that this lost and confused world around us, with all of its problems, that are more and more obvious, are we convinced that what that world needs is the gospel? The good news about Jesus. Are we convinced for ourselves that what we need with the problems that we face and the struggles that we have, big and small, day by day, what we need is the gospel? Because it is the truth that leads to godliness, to living the Christian life, to trusting Jesus more and more. The gospel will enable us to do that as we grasp with ever-increasing clarity what it means for Jesus to have lived and died and lived again. That is Paul's challenge for us as we head out into this letter in these coming weeks. And as we head out this week into the world, wherever God takes us. So let's pray now.
Father God, as we reflect on these things for ourselves, we know it's, it's often hard to, to think about these issues which touch on deeply personal, sometimes painful experiences, concerns, our love for you, our love for our loved ones. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that in him we find a way forwards. That as we follow him, we find life as it is intended, you intended us to live it. So help us, Heavenly Father, to look to Jesus as we grapple with these big questions. And to be confident that it is this truth that will lead to godliness. This truth about eternal life. In Jesus who died and rose from the dead. Might we cling to that. And help each other to do that too. And then bring that to the world around us. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Oh,